0: Bel Air. Great to be here with all of you. I know we have the 901 service right now joining us across the way, and we have many joining us online as well. Whether you are in a hospital or home or traveling, I want to say welcome to you on this morning. We're starting a brand new series that we're gonna explore in the month of September as we dive into our relationships. And I gotta say, we need this now more than ever, because our relationships are broken our relationships with our coworkers, our friends, our family, those that are like us, those that are not like us. I look out on this nation, I look out uh, among my neighborhood, I look through this church, I look in my own heart and I realize relationships are broken. So we need help. We need transformation. And as we walk through these next four weeks in the month of September, as we go to God's Word to help heal our relationships, to give us hope in our relationships, we're gonna find that every single relationship we have, we're gonna find very practical very tangible, very graspable things that we can begin to implement so that we can begin to transform our relationships. Again, all relationships. So whether it's with your spouse, or with your kids, or with your parents, or your extended family, or your neighbors, or your coworkers, or your closest friends, or those that you would refer to as your enemy. Every single one of our relationships can be absolutely transformed this month if we submit to what God has for us. And I use that word submit, man, it's an odd word for us, it's a word that's not too popular in our culture, but as we dive into this passage here in the book of James, I want us to think of this as the intro to the next three weeks. So if you have your Bibles, whether you brought them or if you have them in front of you, let's go to James chapter 1. If you have a pew Bible, it's this red book, it's in the pew in front of you, or if you're in the front row, there's a cubby right behind your leg. I'm going to go to page 980. James is a very short book, easy to skip over. It's after Hebrews, before 1 Peter. And I'm simply going to read for us in a moment. James chapter 1 verses 22, all, uh, let's see, 23 through 25. And if you have a mobile device, I'm reading out of a new revised standard version. So beginning in verse 23. For if any are hearers of the word, and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves, and on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. This, my friends, concludes the reading of God's Word. Maybe some of you are thinking, did he make a mistake there? What does that have to do with relationships? Well, if we're going to talk about relationships, there's many different places from which we could begin. And we have many different opinions, many different teachers, many different theories, many different schools of thought that will give you advice on how to have healthy and whole relationships, to mend relationships, to reconcile relationships, to build and grow relationships. But we need to start at the beginning. We need to start where we believe, and maybe some of us don't believe, but we need to come to believe where the beginning of healthy relationships has to be. And it has to start with God's Word. Now, right from the get-go, I know that's unpopular from some of you. Some of you are saying, yes, that's true. Some of you are saying, no, what? I don't believe God's Word. Well, let's, let's dive into this together. There's this moment here where James says that it's not just about hearing the Word, but it's about doing it as well. And for me, this passage is a fork in the road passage. And every single relationship you have, every single interaction you have with somebody else, how you act in your interaction with them is really a fork in the road. The, the relationship could get worse or it could get better. Things very rarely stay neutral. It either gets worse or it gets better. And if we understand this passage and the true fork in the road that James is talking about, we can begin to become more intentional in our relationships, which we'll unpack over the next three weeks. What's fascinating here is that for many years, I used to think that the fork in the road was either you either hear and don't do or you hear and do. I thought that was the fork in the road, but that's not at all what James is talking about. We'll get there in a moment. But first, he says something very fascinating. This is thousands of years ago, and he uses a metaphor. He says, for someone to hear the Word of God and not do it, it's like somebody who looks in the mirror and then forgets what they look like. Now, that seems like a really odd thing to say, an odd metaphor. Well, what's so fascinating is, and I I kind of geek out on these things, I've been reading a book on memory. I was away with my wife on our 10-year anniversary. We were out of town for a week, and I read this book called Moonwalking with Einstein. Some of you have maybe heard of this. It was a New York Times bestseller, and it, it talks about visual memory and auditory memory and sensory memory. And some people say, oh, you know, I remember, you know, sounds better than I do things that I see. But they've done all these studies to show that our visual memory is so powerful that people can see something and years later recall it. And they've done study after study after study after study where they've shown people a picture, very quickly, just a quick little picture of an apple, of a cat, of a dog, of a horse, of a tree, of a mouse. Now, can you remember what order I said that in? No, probably not. And actually, if you saw them, maybe you'd get five out of seven or maybe four out of seven. Maybe maybe some of you get seven out of seven. But if you were to have a flashcard of the one that I actually showed you, and a flashcard of one that I didn't show you. All the research shows that with seven images, you would 100% of the time get it right. And they've done these studies up to 10,000 images. And the average accuracy of showing one that they showed you, no matter how brief, with one that they didn't show you, For 10,000 images is a 90% accuracy. That's how powerful our visual memory is. Now, so for God to write this through James, before all this scientific research and all this study has been figured out, says something to me. It says that for someone to look in the mirror and then to look away and then forget what they look like really says this. They weren't looking in the mirror at all. It wasn't about it being too quick. It wasn't about them being too busy. They weren't even looking in the mirror at all. And then it's so powerful because I realize in my life where my relationships go off the rails, where I'm not allowing God's Word to guide me, to direct me, to give me hope, to give me correction, to give me uh, humility or even courage. The reason why it's not doing those things is because I'm not even looking. It's not even that I'm forgetting. I'm not even looking. God's Word. And so before we can even talk about what it means to be a doer of the Word, we first got to talk about this idea of what does it mean to be a a hearer of the Word. We live in such a fast-paced culture, every single one of us. Even those of us that are retired, it is so busy. Some of you said to me, I am more busy now in my retirement than I did when I was running a corporation. Kids, the youngest age are saying, I'm just so busy, I can't keep up. We're just, we're so slammed, we're so busy, we're so stressed out. We don't have time, we say, to just hear God's word. But there's this amazing truth that you've got to know. That you don't know yourself, I don't know myself. Your loved ones don't know you as well as God knows you. There's no book. There's no psychologist. There's no expert. There's no teacher. There's nothing in life that knows you better than God knows you. And God's Word has this ability to speak into your life in ways that no other person can. There was a gentleman by the name of Emile Cahier many years ago, about a century ago, who did not believe in God, and he, in his journey, he wanted to be a student of the world, And so he would read many books, he would travel all over the world, and he would write down in his journal different quotes, different sayings, different things that he loved, that he found very inspirational, with the idea that one day, later on down the year, once he filled this journal, he would be able to thumb through it. And this journal, this book, would just tell him who he was. It would show him who he was. All these years of all these travels of getting the best quotes and the best ideas to write them all down, the greatest moments of inspiration. He knew that once he sat down and looked at all of it, he would say, this is me. This defines me. This is my worldview. What happened? After it was full, after about five years, he sits down, he begins thumbing through and he says, what? True story. That's hogwash. I wrote that down?" He's flipping through and he says, oh, that was a good one, I remember that one, flipping through. No, that's, that's not true. And what happened was, is he, like all of us, we change over time. And there is no book that can change with you. Ah, but many years later, Emil came to know Christ accepted Jesus into his life, the Holy Spirit poured into his life and he began to read the Bible and he said, now I have found the book that knows me, that no matter how much I change, no matter what I'm going through, no matter what the state of my relationships are, that there is a truth that speaks into my life, that this verse now means something even more than it meant a year ago. Have you had that? You've experienced that. I've poured my life over the last 16 years through scripture since I gave my life to Christ through this church on April 8th, 2000. As I've gone through scripture, it seems like it becomes richer, more alive, more dynamic, more true. That's why scripture says about itself that it is alive and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. You see, there's nothing in our life that can help us in our relationships more than God's word. But it's how you interact with God's word that's the key. We can't do what, boy, I did for many years, thumb through it and say, ooh, I like that. Ooh, I don't like that. Ooh, I like that. I like that part. Ooh, I don't like that. I'm never going to go to Leviticus. I don't like that. No, I, I like that one. Ooh, that, that section Romans. Too, it's too close to home. You know, we, we can't do it that way. But that's a good starting point because you need to realize that that's what the Bible wants to do with you. The Bible wants to thumb through every page of your life and say, ooh, I like that, ooh, I do not like that. That's what God's Word does if we allow it to speak into our life. You see, the only way we can understand Scripture is if we stand under it, if it has authority over us, if we immerse our life in God's Word. I I love marinating meat. Some of you, you don't eat meat, so forgive me for this metaphor for a moment. But I've got family that live in Texas and some from Kansas City, and they, they give us these great marinades, and we, we put it in for hours, and there's something that happens when you put that chicken or that fish or that meat or whatever it is in that marinade. It literally, when it's sitting in there, when it's saturating it, it is literally transformed. But I know that that meat will never be transformed. That chicken will never be transformed. That fish will never be transformed if that marinade just sits there up on the shelf Oh, and how often I leave my Bible up on the shelf and I'm waiting to get transformed. I've got to take it out and I've got to soak in it. I've got to marinate in it. I've got to immerse my life in it. I've got to allow it to speak into my life, to show me my rough edges, to see where I'm selfish, to see where I'm broken, to see where I'm in the wrong, to see where I wasn't humble, where I got ahead of myself, where I'm self-centered, where I'm filled with pride. You see. That's how you look at something. You don't forget what you look like. You actually look at it. Well, what's so interesting about this passage as you look at it is that there's some keys here that that, that give us this idea of how you can look at Scripture. Open those Bibles back up, page 980. This isn't about just being hearers of the Word, but doers as well. Look at verse 25. It says this, But those who look into the perfect law Now, some translations say, those who look intently. Now, that Greek word is the same Greek word that is used when Peter, after he hears word that Jesus has risen from the grave, who runs to the tomb, it's the same Greek word. Peter looks intently into the open tomb. Do you think Peter's so rushed to look in and just go and just forget about it and go on the rest of his day? No, things have changed. His Savior, his Lord, who he thought was dead for the last three days, who he followed for three years. There's grave clothes. He's not there. He was analyzing. He was interpreting. He was allowing it to just speak. He was looking intently into the empty tomb, realizing it changed everything in his life. And it's the same word that James uses for us when we need to look at God's Word. and says that we should look intently at the perfect law. Now, what's weird is it says the word law. And if you look earlier in the book of James, it talks about God's word, God's word, God's word, God's word, and then it changes to the word law. And of course, throughout the Bible, throughout Scripture, we have laws like the Ten Commandments. We have the Levitical laws, the priestly laws, we have the Mosaic laws, but we also have prophecy. We also have Poetry. We also have apocryphal literature. We have very different types of things that we typically wouldn't describe as law. So is James saying that we should just look intently at the law like the Ten Commandments? Or is it something more? Well, he says that it's the perfect law. And the more that we look at Scripture and the more that we look at the life of Jesus, And the more that we actually listen to what he says, we begin to see that Jesus actually uses the law in a very different way than they used to use the word law in the first century. In fact, it actually says that he quotes the book of Psalms. And he says, even in your law you have said, and he quotes the Psalms. The Psalms are poetry. And so Jesus, if he is who he says he is, and oh, he is who he says he is, because he defeated death, he rose from the grave, he's at the right hand of the Father, and there's been witnesses, there's been proof. If Jesus is saying that even poetry in Scripture is the law, then what he's saying is this, is that there is not a word out of place that isn't normative for our life. And if there's a part that you don't like or that I don't like because there's a lot of it that I don't like, it's because I don't understand it. And I have to submit myself longer to it and say, God, would you reveal to me what you really mean? What would you have for me in this day? What did it mean back then and what does it mean today? Yes, you didn't have people eat shellfish back then, but what does that mean for me today? What are you trying to speak to me? What is this all about? You see, we have to analyze it. We have to interpret it. We have to understand it, but we can't just brush through it. And that's just in the hearing. When was the last time you just sat and let Scripture soak you up? Okay, for those of you that don't like me, when was the last time you went outside and just let the sun's rays just saturate your skin? Now, I know I'm alienating some people. You're thinking, I've got uh, no, I'm not going to go out in the sun. I have SPF 1000. Don't talk about that. But you know, something happens when you're out in the sun without sunscreen. Literally, your skin changes. The collagen changes for many of you, some less, some more. For some of you, it's within a second you start to get burned. Something happens when you are exposed to something. So when you are exposed to Scripture, when you allow yourself long enough to be exposed to Scripture, it begins to transform how you see yourself, how you see others. But what's fascinating is this. Those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, some translations say the law that brings freedom. Now, this is so countercultural. This seems so counterintuitive. Because the way that we define law and freedom now in the modern world, those things don't come together, law and freedom. In fact, the way that we define freedom, if you look at Webster's, if you look at dictionaries today, we define freedom as this it is an absence of restrictions, it is the removal of restrictions. You take away the restrictions. You've got freedom. Law are restrictions, so it doesn't seem to make sense. So either the Bible's wrong or our definition of freedom is wrong. And let me say, I've come to know that whenever I question scripture, I'm always the one in the wrong. And the reason is is that our definition of freedom is wrong. We think of freedom as simply an absence of restrictions, but rather freedom is this. Let me give you this definition. Freedom is being released to be who you were created to be. Now, the 901 wasn't in the service, but brother and sister who were able to play the violin to begin our service, they are experiencing freedom when they are up here playing because they've been released to do what they've been created to do. And artists, if God wired that in you, if you hardwired in you, and if you're able to do that, if you are released to do that, there's freedom in that. You think about a fish. A fish can do amazing things that humans can't. It's how they were designed, it's how they were created. They have gills, they can take in oxygen, not through the air like we do, but they can take in oxygen through their gills underwater. They have flippers that don't work on land but can propel them through the ocean. There is tremendous freedom as we look at fish swimming through the ocean, flying through the ocean, jumping out of the water. I mean, it's phenomenal to see that freedom. But if we think that freedom is an absence of restrictions, is a removal of restrictions, then why can't we just take a fish and put it on the asphalt and say, I took away all the restrictions. You like the ocean? Let me show you the world. Look, enjoy your freedom for an hour on the hot pavement. Let me see. Enjoy. How would that fish enjoy that freedom? That, that freedom? It's a fish out of water you see, freedom isn't about an absence of restrictions, it's about having the right restrictions that keep you in the environment of which you were created to live. I just flew with my wife over some water to the island of Maui and back. There was an owner's manual for that plane, an A330. I am so glad that they put restrictions on how they built that plane. So that people couldn't just put it together however they wanted. So they couldn't just say, I don't feel like putting gas in. I don't want the restriction of gas. I don't want the restriction of having to go through all the checks before I don't want the restrictions of being able to do this and that and this. I don't want the restrictions of even being able to put my wheels down for landing because how cool would it be to skid to a stop and just slide in LAX? I am so thankful for restrictions because they were designed for that plane to fly. And Scripture is given to you from your owner, from the one that designed you, who knows relationships better than you do, who says to you, you must forgive. You must forgive. And when you don't forgive, even if it's hard, even if it's easier to hold a grudge, you must forgive. And if you don't, you are a fish out of water. You must be humble. You must swallow your pride. You must not seek to always be right, not to always win the argument. And if you don't, you are a fish out of water. You must be slow to speak, quick to listen. You must be patient. You must be kind. You must give your life on behalf of those that don't have a voice, that are on the margins of society. And if you don't do that, you are a fish out of water. You're not going to experience the freedom that God's Word has for you. You see, there is tremendous freedom in God's Word because it's the right restrictions. And there's restrictions that I don't like. And it's because I'm being human. I'm being disobedient. And when I don't like those things and when I stand over Scripture rather than letting Scripture stand over me, in that moment, I'm actually experiencing slavery rather than freedom. And I try to solve the problems in my relationships with those that I love and those that I have problems with. And things get worse and worse and worse and worse. And until I stop, until I submit myself to hear God's Word, to stand under it, to allow it to saturate my life, to immerse my life, to marinate in it, and then to do it. But here's the interesting thing. It's not that simple. Open your Bibles back up, Romans chapter 7. You see, it's very easy for me to get up here and say, don't just hear the Word, but do it. And we all walk out of here feeling this tremendous anxiety that we have to perform for God. Because the truth is that you can never do enough. You can never do enough. We're going to Romans 7. I'm going to read a section here. Let's just, let's immerse, let's saturate in Scripture for a moment. Let's marinate. Verse 7 Of Romans 7, bottom of page 9 and 18. Let's let's hear about the struggle, how hard it is to just go out and do God's Word. Verse 7, then what should we say? That the law is sin by no means. This is Paul speaking. Yes, if it had not been for the law, listen to this, it would have not been for the law, I would have not have known about sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That's the 10th commandment. But sin, season and opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, season and opportunity, the commandment deceived me. And though it killed me, So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did what is good, then bring death to me. By no means it was sin working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And you're thinking, what is this about? Paul is saying that there's this conflict. This thing that I thought was gonna bring me life has brought me death. It says don't touch and I touched. It says don't look and I looked. Don't taste it. I tasted. Don't covet. I coveted. And he goes on and on. He says, "What What shall I do? You see, you're in good company with Paul. I'm in good company with Paul. He says, The things I want to do, I don't do. I don't forgive. I hold grudges to my spouse. I seek revenge with my neighbors that throw their dog poop in my trash can. I do all these things. I don't want to do them, but I do them. And the things I, want, I do want to do, I want to have the courage to do that, but I don't do it. And Paul is saying that the more intently you look at the law that leads to freedom, it actually, it leads to death because it's never enough. And whenever you see the word do, I hope you immediately, 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 whenever you hear the word do, immediately, would you say in your heart and your mind, never enough, never enough, never enough, never enough? You can never do enough. You can never do enough. You can never do enough to live up to the measure of God's law. Never you could do enough. And Paul says this in verse 21. So I find to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close to my hand, I can never do enough. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members in my body another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. And I get emotional reading this because he's speaking my love language. Wretched man that I am. Because I can never do enough. We can never do enough. And he goes on and he says this, Who will rescue me from this body of death? And that's the fork in the road. That's where things change. This isn't about just hearing God's word and doing it. It's about knowing that you will never do enough. That in all your relationships, you can't make your relationships healthy on your own. You can't seek reconciliation on your own. You can't build relationships. All the things that you long for and dream for, you cannot do it on your own because we are wretched. We are broken. We are sinful. And Paul says, who will rescue me from this body of sin that the law speaks condemnation to? And he says this, verse 25, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he goes on in verse chapter 8. in in chapter 8 verses 1 all the way through the end of how Jesus did what we could not do. He lived to the T the perfect law. He was humble. He was kind. He was gracious. He was bold. He was courageous. He came alongside the brokenhearted. He was a voice for the voiceless. He He protected the marginalized. He did all of these things so perfectly. But until this week, I've never realized this other half of it. That Jesus fulfilled the law twice. And I've never really thought of it that way. And, and all of a sudden, it just kind of opened up, it just blossomed. It, it see, the scripture, it's, it's alive and active. After 16 years of studying it, all of a sudden, this new thing just bursts forth. Jesus fulfilled the law twice. Because there's two ways to fulfill a law. You either do it or you're punished for it. If you do it, you fulfill the law. If you're punished for it, you satisfy the law through the punishment. Jesus satisfied the law twice. Scripture says that he was though, he was tempted. Oh, he was tempted. He was without sin. He lived and he did. He didn't just hear the word, he did it perfectly. In his whole life, he's quoting Scripture. You can tell that Scripture is so saturated his life that everywhere, he's tempted, he quotes Scripture. He's on the cross, he quotes Scripture. People are condemning him, he quotes Scripture. He saturated his life in God's Word, and he did it. He satisfied it for himself. He could have just done that. He could have just satisfied the law for himself, been good with God as Father, but that wasn't enough. He satisfied it again on the cross. Not for Himself, for you. Do you realize that when He went to the cross, He satisfied the law a second time? So that scripture says that He who knew no sin became sin for us, all of our brokenness, all the punishment, all the things that we cannot do, though we try to do, He took upon Himself so that we would have His righteousness, that we would have His perfect record. So that when you see the word do, you would say, Never enough, never enough, N E, never enough, D O N E. It's done. My hope and my prayer is that when you see the word do, you would say, It's never enough for me, but what? Oh, I'm going to put that together. It's been done by Christ. And He has actually set me free in my marriage, in my extended family with my coworkers, with my friends, with my my neighbors, with those that I meet for the first time. He has set me free that I don't have to justify myself and try to do things so that I get ahead for myself, but I can be set free and I can have this confidence in Christ that I can walk into a relationship and say, I'm open. I'm open to correction. I'm open to rebuke. I'm open to be courageous that I can go out on the streets of Los Angeles and actually be late somewhere so that I can actually not be so hurried so I can actually sit with someone and actually get to know their name who's sitting on the side of the freeway and talk to them and ask them what's going on, that I would not be so wrapped up in what's going on in my life that I would actually seek to help them in that moment, that I would actually do the things that I wanna do, that I would actually step out and be courageous and be a voice for those on the margins, you see, when you realize that Jesus has already done it all, that he set you free, that when you look in the perfect law, that actually, yes, it's designed for you, but you'll never live up to it, but it's perfect because Jesus perfected it. He says, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Then you can be set free to do the hard work that we're gonna talk about over the next three weeks. That we can confront the pain in our relationships and to work through them to see the peace that we can have in our relationships, the, pe- the purpose that we have in our relationships. But it's got to begin with saying, God, I need you. And there's some of you that are where I was about 17 years ago, that I thought just because I went to church that it made me a Christian. And it took a roommate of mine in college who says, Drew, I love you, but according to my understanding of scripture, you are not a Christian and therefore man, you're missing out so much. And he says, Drew, you are the Lord of your life. You are the Savior of your life. He's reading for me, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Unless Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you're going to miss out. You're going to keep trying to earn approval from people. You're going to try to keep making up for mistakes. And God's Word, Romans 10, 9 and 10, convicted me so much that it changed my life. That I said, you know what? Ethan is right. I was trying to do things my own way. I was trying to use God as my sidekick. I was trying to use him as good advice. I needed to submit to him being the Lord of my life, the savior of my life. And I gave my life to Jesus. And in that instant, things changed. I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, oh, things changed. God's spirit began to dwell in me, began to transform me from the inside out. And there's this great truth that every single person here in the 901, those listening online, that if you have yet to give your life to Jesus, that all you have to do is say, Jesus, I don't even know the fullness of what this means, but I want you. I need you. My relationships are broken. My marriage is broken. I'm estranged from my kids. I'm making a mess of things at work. I just got fired. I'm, I'm going through all these things. And you're looking for solutions. And Jesus is saying, I'm right here. I have walked the path. I have done the right road. The, the road less taken, the road less traveled, I've already done it. Now meeting you here at the fork in the road. Will you follow me? It's a good road. It's filled with hope and promise and goodness and transformation. And the moment you say yes to Jesus in that instant, Christ begins to dwell in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You are adopted into God's family. And Scripture says that now, actually now, because of the Holy Spirit, now you can begin to understand what this is all about. Because Scripture also says, without the Holy Spirit, this does not make sense. And if many of you have been reading this and saying, this doesn't make sense, perhaps, perhaps, either you're not spending enough time in it, or you haven't first said, Jesus, would you come into my heart? We've got a long road ahead of us in September, all of us together. Let's start by looking at God's Word. Let's pray. God, as we prepare our hearts to partake in communion, to come to your table, may we be reminded that you you invite us, that, that we come because you have paid it all. Jesus, would you help us to see where we are fish out of water, where we are trying to operate in ways that you haven't designed for us, but may we look intently. May we this week perhaps choose simply Romans 8 to memorize or to study, to saturate it. Would you convict us? Would you help us in our unbelief? God, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for the journey that's ahead, and it's in your precious name we pray we say together, amen.